Welcome to Nomadicate, a podcast all about exploring how different cultures, things, ideas, and even people shape and define our lives and our world. You're listening to your host, Katie DeVell, and today we're going to be talking about how our thoughts quietly shape our reality. Thoughts are the catalyst for the human world, the foundation of civilization, art, and war. They're so innate that we rarely think about them most of the time, and hardly do we ever recognize their true power. In the spiritual community, the power of thought is a well-discussed topic, with belief and prayer being the bedrock of many religions. Until recently, I've disregarded it as hocus-pocus. The inner skeptic in me is wary to believe that thinking aspirational thoughts can attract some idealistic future, or believing and praying to God can grant some of my wishes. It seems too far-fetched, but what if there's some truth to it? I'm persuaded by science, but spirituality and science don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. What if some of spirituality and religion's core concepts, such as the power of thought, had scientific backing? And what if the power of thought was as profound as people say? Whether you're spiritual or not, you're going to want to tune into this episode to find out about the scientific correlation between thought and reality, the power of religion, and funny little apparatuses called brain-computer interfaces. So, to start off, what are thoughts really? I've always taken the endless chatter in my mind for granted. My thoughts are composed of a continuous string of images, flashes of words, and my own voice creating an incessant narration. It's a very rackety place, but not all people think this way. Although rare, affecting around 4% of the general population, some people experience aphantasia, which is the lack of mental imagery. It's also known as mental blindness. Some people think exclusively in words, and some people think exclusively in images. Many people have a combination of both. It really varies, and a lot of people don't even have an inner dialogue, which is weird. But fundamentally, despite how you think, thoughts are representations of things or information. They, to some degree, represent or correspond to something we felt with our emotions, perceived with our senses, or created as an action plan. For example, forming an image of reaching for an apple on a tree. Dr. Ralph Lewis talks about this in his article, What Actually is a Thought, and How is Information Physical? This is why I love the saying, there's no such thing as an original idea. All ideas are derivatives of other bits of information that we've collected throughout our lives, and all information is anchored in the physical world, according to modern information theory. An IBM physicist, Ralph Landauer, explained that information exists only through a physical representation, thus tying it to all the restrictions and possibilities of our real physical universe. That representation can be really anything from neurons, an engraving on a piece of stone, or a mark on a paper. If our thoughts are physical by nature, and our thoughts are based on what we felt with our emotions or perceived with our senses, this means that thoughts are just some extension of some version of reality. You may call BS on this, You may say, well, what about mythology and the creation of mystical creatures like dragons? Dragons aren't real. And the idea was created from a person or people's thoughts. Well, you could argue that the idea of the dragon was rooted in reality, 
because most likely it was inspired by real reptiles and dinosaur fossils. Its representation is just a watered-down and altered version of some aspect or aspects of reality. This is why art has the ability to affect us so profoundly. Great cinema or literature usually effectively represents something universally experienced in the physical world. So already, there's this understanding that the physical world that we know of as our reality is intertwined with our thoughts. They're working together in this sort of loop. But thoughts are mainly physical in the sense that they're conducted by neural activity. They're represented by neural activity. Before talking about how our thoughts affect our reality, let's dive into the biology of thoughts, because this is going to be important when we discuss brain-computer interfaces later in the episode. So, what's going on inside our brains when we think? Well, like I've mentioned, thoughts are conducted by neurons. Neurons are nerve cells that allow our bodies to function. According to Lena Bedock, Assistant Professor of Health and Wellness Studies at Binghamton University, we nearly have 100 billion neurons. In our article, Neurons Help Explain How Our Brains Think, thought formation is possible because neurons are releasing neurotransmitters, our body's chemical messengers, that generate electrical charges to neighboring neurons. These signals spread to thousands of other neurons, probably way even more, leading to thought formation. She explains that our environment is thought to trigger neuronal firing, leading in a thought process. This is pretty intuitive. What I watch on TV, who I speak to, and what I'm around will trigger certain thoughts to arise. It's a cause and effect situation. She further explains that a continuous pattern of neuronal firing will enforce the circuitry. Think of habits, mastering a skill, and beliefs. There's a saying that goes, neurons that fire together, wire together. So the more we think about something or do something, the more likely it is to stick. This is because our nervous system is extremely malleable. According to the article, The Impact of Studying Brain Plasticity, Neurons have the capability to change their activity in response to either internal or external stimuli by adjusting their connections, functions, or structure. The saying neurons that fire together wire together is referring to neuroplasticity, more specifically Donald Hebb's theory of plasticity. Donald Hebb was a Canadian psychologist, and his theory claims that if two neurons fire at the same time, their connections are strengthened, and their firing pattern is more likely to occur in the future. The opposite happens when two neurons fire in an uncoordinated way repeatedly. Their connections are weakened, and they're more likely to fire independently. There's a really good explanation of this on YouTube if you want to check it out. It's where I pulled this information from. It's called Synaptic Plasticity, Heb1, and it's on the channel Master Robotica UCLM. But this process can be observed microscopically, and it's really beautiful to witness. When we learn something new, we can actually see new connections forming between neurons. We can also see neural connections tearing apart from one another as we redirect our focus. This is a pruning phenomenon, and it happens when we change our thoughts. Dr. Joe Dispenza explains this in an excerpt of his TED Talk presentation, which I'll link in the show notes. Rightfully so, it's called Neurons That Fire Together, Wire Together. He gives the example of trying to practice compassionate thoughts when we usually have years and years of reinforcing negative thought patterns associated with, say, resentment and anger. Over the years, we have what we would say fired and wired those circuits, and they have predominance over compassion. But through persistence, we can force compassionate thoughts 
to become the loudest voice in our head. When that happens, a really cool chemical phenomenon occurs. Take a listen. Now, the moment that becomes the loudest voice in your head, the brain has to seal that circuit more permanently. So when the action potential is firing down the neuron from the presynaptic cleft to the postsynaptic cleft, there's a glue that seals the circuit called neural growth factor, and it travels in the opposite direction. But there's only a certain amount of that neural growth factor to go around. So it starts to steal the glue from the neighboring circuits. And when that happens, there goes your memory of your mother-in-law hurting your feelings 10 years ago. There goes the thought that you hate her. There goes the impatience. There goes the intolerance. And the only signal that's traveling to that neuron is called compassion. Now, every place where one neuron connects with another neuron is a memory. When this happens, you begin to biologically and neurologically prune away the old memory of the old self. The audio for that is a little crappy, so I apologize. This is just so incredibly interesting to me. That's why our self-talk matters. If you tell yourself, I'm stupid or I'm unattractive or whatever, over and over again, you're subconsciously reinforcing those thoughts because of the continuous firing pattern of those neurons. Then these thoughts become beliefs because beliefs are basically just thoughts we keep thinking over and over again until we've accepted them as facts. This process, from my understanding, is the underpinning of learning, habit formation, and skill mastering. For example, if you practice an instrument, the simple fact is that your skill will improve and become more automatic as a result of correct repetition, unless you're practicing with bad habit, bad technique I mean, then the bad technique will be reinforced. Habits are different from thoughts in the sense that they involve behavior, and habit formation is a complicated process that I'm not really going to get into right now. But if you're interested in learning about that, I recommend listening to the Huberman Lab podcast episode, The Science of Making and Breaking Habit. But back to self-talk. If you think about something enough times, learning those sets of thoughts as beliefs, like I've mentioned before, because of neuroplasticity, you have physically altered your nerve cells. This is the first evidence, in my opinion, that points to thoughts shaping the physical world, or what you may call reality. The physical world sparks thoughts, and thoughts shape the physical world on a micro level through neurons, what if it's possible for thoughts to have even greater effects? Since we've talked about neural networks, we're gonna zoom out a little and try to see the even bigger picture. Have you ever laid in bed, eating chips and watching workout tutorials thinking to yourself, Oh yeah, this is something I'm definitely going to do later. Maybe it's just me, but I've definitely thought about working out and ended up procrastinating for days on end. Wouldn't it be nice if just thinking about working out would count as some form of physical activity? Well, it turns out that visualization alone, or thinking about exercise, can increase muscle mass and even performance. It just has to be done in a very specific way, but we'll talk about that a little bit later in the episode. The Cleveland Clinic Foundation conducted a study in 2004 involving 30 young volunteers about the power of visualization. The volunteers were divided into three groups, with two being instructed on how to make finger and bicep movements as real as possible, just by thinking. 
The researchers found that the strength increased in both of the two imaginary movement groups during and after the imagined training sessions. The imaginary finger movement session increased finger strength by 35%, and the bicep training session increased bicep strength by 13.5%. Various studies following that study found that muscle strength can be increased through engaging in internal mental imagery of forceful muscle contractions. You can check out the study in the article, Can You Strengthen Your Muscles by Thought Alone?, published on Sciences Academy. Many high-level athletes, such as Michael Phelps, use mental imagery to improve performance. Dr. Andrew Huberman of the Huberman Lab podcast, who I'm going to say is my nerd crush because I find myself always digging around on his channel to get some answers to my questions, also talks about the power of visualization. In the episode, Science-Based Mental Training and Visualization for Improved Learning, he goes in depth about what visualization is and how we can use it in our everyday lives to increase desired performance outcomes. I'll give somewhat of a brief summary of some of his points because I think that visualization is a really underrated self-mastery tool. When I heard about visualization practices in the past, even though I tried it, I was like, this is stupid. It's a waste of time. It's not even helping. This was when I was doing more open mic nights and I wrote pages in my journal about imagining what going on stage would be like, what I would do, etc., Now that I've done my research, I learned that I was overthinking and not being productive at all. And it turns out I was doing it wrong. We're supposed to keep visualizations short and simple. And I was going into way too much detail in my journal entries. But as I'm learning that our thoughts can actually be observed on a neural level to some extent, I'm convinced that visualization actually manifests our reality to some degree. It just has to be done correctly. Here are some interesting points that Dr. Huberman makes in his episode. First of all, mental training and visualization have been around for a hot second. It's been studied since the late 1800s, so people have been curious about how we form mental images and how we can apply them to learning more efficiently. Like I've alluded to before, mental training and visualization is dependent on our neuroplasticity, but throughout our lives, we have two types of neuroplasticity, developmental and adult. Since there's probably not a lot of youngins listening to my podcast, I'm just going to focus on adult plasticity. But just to know, developmental plasticity happens through our exposure to the world, through things happening to us and our engagement with people and things around us, and occurs from birth to around the age of 25. 25 is the average age of when people's developmental plasticity tapers off, but like Dr. Huberman mentioned, it could occur a little before or after 25, depending on the person. Adult plasticity is more intentional and self-directed. In a way, we choose how our minds change through focus on specific thoughts and activities. This means we can use adult plasticity to achieve our own goals in life. The foundation of adult plasticity, which will be important to know if you choose to start using mental training and visualization in your own life, is dependent on focus and sleep. Dedicated focus is pretty intuitive. But it's so important to get sleep because that's actually when the rewiring of our neural connections are solidified, specifically the first night of sleep after learning something. That's why it's important for students to get a good night's rest because this is when memory consolidation occurs, meaning that we're more likely to remember stuff. And we're all students of life, so we should all be getting enough sleep. But Dr. Huberman also explains that mental training and visualization involves both strengthening and weakening of certain neural connections. This is basically what Dr. Joe Dispenza was explaining in his TED Talk, but Dr. Huberman points out 
that this is because there are certain aspects of mental training and visualization protocols that exploit these strengthening and weakening processes. Let's briefly talk about a few key principles of mental visualization that can, to some level, help us manifest our reality. The first key point to remember is, in order to reap the benefits of visualization, we need to keep those imagined circumstances brief and sparse. The best results occur if you keep visualization within 15 to 20 seconds. And Dr. Huberman explains that there shouldn't be too many imagined auditory or motor sequences. Keep it short and simple, so it can be repeated over and over again. Secondly, while imagining something with our mind's eye or ear sparks the same neural activity as if real-world events were happening, it's not a replacement for real-world experience when it comes to learning and mastering motor skills. So unfortunately, we're not going to become proficient at an activity just by thinking our way through imagined mental steps, and we're not going to get bulked by just imagining bench presses, for example. So maybe watching workout videos in bed isn't going to get me washboard abs. That's so disappointing. But Dr. Huberman expresses that mental visualization and training is most effective when we perform very similar physical or mental tasks in the real world. He also argues that giving a cognitive label or identity to a real-world activity and then applying that label to an imagined experience can enhance our ability to properly execute a task down the road, which in my opinion is a form of manifesting something by thinking. He gives the example of a golf swing, but since I don't care about golf, no offense to people that do, I'm going to create my own example. Apply this to whatever you want to learn and execute. For me, it would be performing a chord sequence on my guitar. When I'm not playing, I could do a short imaginary sequence of playing the chords based on a song that I've been practicing in the real world. I could imagine where I put my fingers on the strings and imagine the strumming pattern. Labeling this mental exercise would help me improve my accuracy in the next performance. I could call it Katie Kills This Chord Progression A1 or whatever, it really doesn't matter. But according to Dr. Huberman, next time I play that chord progression in real life, I would need to say the name of that label aloud, or to myself, in order to fully benefit from visualization's full effects. It's really interesting. It's almost like going into a filing cabinet and pulling out a card with instructions on how to do something. According to Dr. Huberman, we're just better mentally seeing things or manipulating objects when its label is associated with real-world experiences. It just engages more neural machinery. If you'd like to get into the nitty-gritty of mental training and visualization and science-based instructions on exactly how to do it, I highly recommend checking out Dr. Huberman's episode, which you can find linked in the show notes. For the sake of time, I can't go further into this. However, I have learned through his episode that thoughts alone can influence our reality to some degree. So, out of all of this, a new question arises. If our thoughts can alter how neurons connect, create muscle mass, and help us improve learning and performance, can thoughts attract people, opportunities, and things to us? This is a big question, and I'm going to attempt to answer it based on my own personal opinion. Off the bat, my philosophy is, yeah, our thoughts can affect our emotions, and our emotions can alter our body's chemical response, as well as our behavior. I talk a little bit about emotions on Nomadicate's fourth episode, Oh, so emotional if you want to check it out. But I believe this domino effect of our thoughts oftentimes creating our emotions and our emotions creating a physical response does affect what we do and do not attract. 
There's this thing called emotional contagion. According to the Harvard Business Review article, Reentry Stress is Contagious, Here's How to Protect Yourself, Melody Wildlane explains that studies have shown that people can adopt the emotion of another person. Humans mimic the facial expressions, posture, and behavior of people they spend a lot of time around. This is why we love being around people who are positive and why we avoid being around people who are negative. In my opinion, this creates a natural type of attraction and deterrence of people and opportunities. Similar people tend to be attracted to one another, while dissimilar people tend to deter from one another. Usually, the negative will not attract the positive. Why would positive people and opportunities be drawn to interact with people who are negative? Not that this is always the case, but I think it's true for most of the time. Thoughts apart from what we've talked about before also have the ability to attract certain things to us, either positive or negative, as a result of choice and behavior. For example, say you want to be in a certain industry, say film, I've been in film before, you have an either underdeveloped or very developed skill set, but you want to be around people doing your desired trade, either to learn or collaborate. Well, you have to make the choice to put yourself around those types of people by doing. By doing, that could be a variety of things from taking classes about you know, say acting or how to work a camera or by going to parties, etc. But by having the thoughts that lead to the choice, which is also a type, a type of thought, I guess, and the act of putting yourself in a situation, you're allowing yourself to be found or allowing people and opportunities to be attracted to you. If you've ever been involved in the arts, especially as an actor, this is a bedrock rule. It's kind of like a magnet type of situation. If you have two normal magnets, they won't attach to each other if they're in separate rooms. One has to be closer to the other for them to collide. Maybe this is the basis of the saying, what you seek is seeking you. But in that quote, there's an element of movement. You have to move towards what's seeking or being attracted to you in order to meet. When people talk about manifestation, I think most people think of energy, vibrations, and how these vibrations attract your desired reality. There's not much scientific backing for this version of manifestation that I'm aware of, but just because there's lack of evidence doesn't mean manifestation in this sense is invalid. In fact, manifestation, or what some may call faith, is at the heart of many ancient religions around the world. This brings us to our next topic, religion and the power of belief. I would like to thank one of Nomadicate's loyal listeners, Diego, who is also my friend, for a question he submitted through my website at nomadicate.com. If you have any questions or recommendations, I would love to hear from you via the online forum, or you can message me through my Instagram at nomadicate underscore podcast. But Diego, you asked me if I could give my insight about Christianity, and I thought this episode would be a really great opportunity to discuss religion as a whole, and more specifically, the power of belief within religion. First, I'd like to start off with a quote by the Dalai Lama. He said, The purpose of religion is to control yourself, not to criticize others. This quote really resonates with me. In my opinion, the purpose of religion is to help the follower become a better person. Most religions from around the world largely advocate for similar noble values, such as love, forgiveness, peace, and brotherhood. That's not to say religions, such as Christianity, don't have violent, intolerant, or outdated passages. 
However, when I hear about religious extremist, doesn't matter who it is, I don't think that religion itself is to blame, but rather individuals who are suffering from mental health issues and flaws in personal character. Throughout history, religion has been used as an excuse to commit horrendous crimes, and it definitely can be used as a tool to indoctrinate people. But religion or faith is almost instinctual to humans. According to the article Hunter-Gatherers and the Origins of Religion, the authors claim that religion is thought to have appeared in Africa during the Upper Paleolithic period. That dates back broadly to around 50,000 to 10,000 years ago. As of today, every society known to man has some sort of religious belief or practice. Although I won't go into why humans developed religion too much, it's very apparent to me that religion or spirituality does serve some sort of positive purpose for mankind. Maybe it was formed as a method of control when society started to form, or maybe we have this innate desire to believe there's something greater than us. With all the suffering in the world, people tend to need something to believe in and lean on when times get hard. As an agnostic, I wholeheartedly agree that a person doesn't need to be religious or spiritual to be moral, but I also can't deny the power of belief. However, I think that the benefits of belief are the result of the placebo effect rather than the existence of God or deities. Let's talk about the placebo effect and how it may be connected to spiritual belief, prayer, and self-healing. So, what is the placebo effect? The placebo effect, according to Joseph Saling's article, What is the Placebo Effect?, is a fake medical treatment that appears to be real. Placebos don't have any active substance intended to affect health, and they can come in any form, really. Placebos are used by researchers to help determine what effect a treatment or drug may have on a condition. One group is given the real treatment, and the other group is given a false one. The researchers then compare the effects of the real treatment with the placebo. Many studies have shown that placebos can produce similar effects to the real treatment because of our mind's relationship to the body. People can have negative reactions such as side effects, or placebos may help symptoms improve. They're thought to be dependent on our own expectations and how strong they are. If we have stronger expectations of a positive outcome, which may be heavily dependent on the relationship between the healthcare provider and the patient, according to the article, the more likely it is that the patient will experience positive effects. On a side note, I can see how this ties in with religion. A person who's a believer in God is the patient in this thought experiment. And let's say God is the healthcare provider. Praying and asking a greater power to alleviate some type of suffering in your inner life could work as a placebo effect, in my opinion. I believe that people who are religious or spiritual and have a strong relationship with their God or higher entity have more power to positively change their body's chemistry. This is my agnostic take, and I'll further explain myself in a minute. Sailing also claims the same is true with negative effects. If someone strongly expects to have side effects from a treatment such as headaches, there's a greater chance of those reactions occurring. He also argues that although the reaction may be based on a fake treatment, he says that the physical reaction is very much real. In positive reaction cases, some studies have shown the increased release of the body's natural pain relievers, endomorphins. Another thing to remember is that it's possible for placebo results to occur, even if the individual knows that their treatment is technically fake. So, how does prayer and the placebo effect work together? Again, from an agnostic point of view, a huge part of me thinks that a belief, 
a repeated thought about something we've internalized as a fact, can be used as the basis of the placebo effect, and in my opinion, it's often carried out through prayer. The power to heal yourself or reduce pain at bare minimum could simply come from the belief that it's within God's capability to do so or our body's capability to do so. For the case study I'm about to give, I'm going to be drawing from the Forbes article, The Science Behind Prayer and the Placebo Effect. A 2008 report illustrated how one woman was able to alleviate the symptoms of Huntington's disease after having a pilgrimage and a religious experience with Virgin Mary. Huntington's disease is the progressive breakdown of the brain's nerve cells over time. The patient visited Lourdes, which is a French town, and she claimed the Virgin Mary told her she was healed. After the experience, the patient wholeheartedly believed she was cured, although she continued taking her medications. The patient's doctors examined her several times before and after the experience, where they found her religious conviction sparked a placebo effect, which alleviated the symptoms of her disease. It caused nearly a complete elimination of her involuntary movement, as well as a 40% improvement using a standardized test. Her anxiety also decreased. The article concludes that a handful of studies do suggest that prayer, as a result of the placebo effect, could mediate pain relief. For people who are religious, believe in God, and think that God's hand is at play in healing, that's an equally valid opinion. It's just not my take, or the point I'm arguing for. Anyway, Diego, to finally answer your question about my insight into Christianity, Christianity, just like any other religion, is a tool. It's a tool we can use to improve our inner selves. By improving our inner selves, we can then improve the world, not by indoctrination, but by emitting kindness and love. Christianity can also serve as a tool, depending on the individual, to suppress people, manipulate, and serve as an excuse to commit violence against others. However, it doesn't have to be that way. Through any type of religion or spiritual practice, there's the opportunity for belief. And belief, as we've talked about before, can have some really powerful effects. I'm curious to hear y'all's take on the power of belief. What are some of your personal experiences of when belief changed your reality? Send me a message via Instagram or my online forum. Or if you know me, tell me in person. Okay, so we've talked about what a thought is, how new thoughts neurally fuse together while some tear apart, and the power of visualization and belief. That's been a lot, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. We could go on and on about all of this because it's so nuanced, but for the sake of time, we're about to wrap it up. But there's one last subject I wanted to touch on. Since science has a fairly solid understanding of how our thoughts are formed and what's going on neurologically, we're entering into a really exciting and terrifying era where our thoughts and technology meet, literally. Well, you may say that's already happening with smartphones, but I'm talking about where computers physically interact with our brain to alter our reality. Brain-computer interfaces, or BCIs, have been around for a while, and they basically capture our neural signals, analyze them, and then convert them into commands, according to the article Brain-Computer Interfaces in Medicine. These commands are sent to output devices that perform desired actions. While the main goal of BCIs is to correct neuromuscular disorders, BCIs have enormous potential to positively and perhaps negatively change how society functions in the future. While there were a lot of scientific milestones leading up to the creation of BCIs, the very first tests with the BCI development were carried out on monkeys in the late 1960s. 
1969, a researcher named Eberhard Fett successfully connected a needle in a meter to a single neuron in a monkey's brain. With only its brain activity, Fett was able to train the monkey to move the needle. There are two types of BCIs, non-invasive and invasive. Non-invasive wearable caps were tested in the 70s, and the first invasive BCI, used on a human, was implanted during the 90s. Invasive BCIs are surgically connected to the brain's tissue. While invasive BCIs seem frightening because it's literally something stuck in your brain and you have wires cascading down your skull, it's given many disabled people a degree of their freedom and mobility back. Through the use of invasive BCIs, paralyzed people have been able to move robotic arms, play computer games, and operate TVs, among other things. Even non-invasive BCIs have amazing capabilities. You can literally operate a drone now with just your thoughts, using a wearable cap that's decoding and translating those neural signals into commands. It's kind of crazy. And of course, Elon Musk is all over this. He's created Neuralink, a neurotech startup, and according to its website, Neuralink is fully implantable, cosmetically invisible, and designed to let you control a computer or mobile device anywhere you go. The special thing about Neuralink, though, is that it's fully implantable, or wireless, unlike the previous invasive BCIs, and has a little battery that can be charged wirelessly, as well as low-power chips and electronics that process neural signals and send them to the Neuralink app. But Neuralink is on its way to becoming accessible, and it recently was approved by the FDA to start recruiting people for clinical trials. Not that I qualify, but I won't be signing up. Rightfully so, people are concerned. While Neuralink's main mission, especially during the trials, is to bridge the lost connection between disabled people's bodies and brains, everyone is curious, and frankly scared, to see how this could play out years and years down the road, especially if artificial intelligence is integrated into it. And that's definitely a future desired goal of Neuralink. Dr. Matthew McDougall, the head surgeon of Neuralink, said that himself on another Huberman Lab podcast episode, Neuralink and Technologies to Enhance Human Brains. Dr. McDougall has a lot of visions, although currently not attainable, that could be fulfilled through Neuralink technology. Within his kid's lifetime, he could envision, in quote, this is what he said, full human expansion of human cognition into AI, full immersion in the internet of your cognitive abilities, having no limitation for what you think as bottlenecked by needing to read the Wikipedia article first to have the data to inform your thoughts, having communication with anyone you want to, unrestricted by this flapping air past meat on your face. That was a funny way he put that, but this is why people are scared. With all the writers and actor strikes occurring as a result of AI, where is this going to put us as a society? If Neuralink will allow people to instantly draw upon information with their minds, how will society adapt? Will there be greater information barriers for people who can't access Neuralink? For example, there already exists an information barrier for people who can't afford technology and formal education. Will Neuralink make the problem worse? Will Neuralink become a luxury that only the rich can afford? Maybe Neuralink will monetize its features like apps do today. Maybe you'll have to buy instant access to the internet or have telepathic communications to people who also have Neuralink. The powerful may get more powerful while the vulnerable are suppressed by their technological disadvantage. 
I can see a lot of problems happening in the future with Neuralink, but people will have to accept it as an unstoppable force. If Neuralink does end up offering all these features in the next hundred years, people will be persuaded to have Neuralink implanted. It's all about staying up to date with technology. Just like the iPhone, or more broadly the smartphone, if everyone has it, it makes it super inconvenient for you to not have one. This is all hypothetical and somewhat based on my opinion, but these are valid questions that people should ask as technology continues to develop. Thoughts do impact our reality, and with BCIs, our thoughts will have more power than ever before. With that being said, that concludes our ninth episode of Nomadicate. If you'd like to read up on anything I've talked about, I'll leave my sources in the show notes. Please also don't hesitate to send me messages via nomadicate.com or nomadicate underscore podcast on Instagram to shout out future episode suggestions. And above all, if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share and leave a review. Again, you're listening to Nomadicate, and I'm your host, Katie DeVille. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks for being a global citizen. Remember to stay curious.